0: As you can see we are beginning a new series today called Friction Now, normally I take this time to go through some book of the Bible but I want to pause right now and to talk about how to navigate relational conflict and the main reason I want to do this is because I think we are living in a culture that is experiencing a grace deficit. Right now there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of relational conflict. And it seems that fights and arguments seem to be brewing just under the surface of every conversation. And, and I think it's because of what we have experienced over the last 12 months. I mean, COVID has not only affected so many people physically, I think COVID and the quarantine has affected all of us to some degree, mentally and emotionally. I mean, most families I know last year had very similar experiences. Uh, when the shelter-in-place order came, when the quarantine came, for the first couple of weeks, it was nice. It was this welcome change from the normal frantic pace of life. I, I know in our family that we suddenly had a lot more time as the kids were now home from school and sports were canceled, both professional sports and the sports they were playing in. As all of these things happened, there was just a lot more free time, a lot more family time. I had several years ago gone to Lowe's and bought one of those metal fire pits that they sell there and brought it home. I think we used it one time. It just sat there collecting dust, but then when the the shelter in place deal happened. We got it out and I got some firewood and and for several nights we roasted marshmallows and made s'mores and we watched movies together and went on walks, lots of neighborhood walks. I mean I think most families were experiencing that. And and because we weren't in our normal routine of let's get up early, let's get the kids to school, let's get homework done, let's go from this practice to that practice, we We just had a lot more family time, and it was nice for about two weeks. (laughs) And then, well, it was a lot of family togetherness, and I think about day 15 or 16, Katie looked at me and said, are they really not going back to school at all this spring? You know, is it really going to be the fall before they go back, And, and will they go back in the fall? I think a lot of families had very similar experiences. And after a while, there was just a little too much family closeness. In fact, a while back, I came across an article uh, that was uh, part of a radio program that WABE in Atlanta uh, did. They're an NPR station. And in that program, here's what they said. Police departments nationwide are reporting that domestic violence cases are on the rise amid coronavirus shelter-in-place orders. Now, pause there for just a moment. I want you to get the, the sad irony in this statement. Uh, they are saying that as people are forced to stay at home and be with their families, that it's so hard, so difficult, that these families are resorting to violence. An Atlanta Police Department spokesman told WABE's morning edition that there was a 36% increase in reported domestic violence incidents from March to April. And from what I understand, this number only went up. As people were ordered to shelter in place, there was more quarreling, arguing, and ultimately violence. I, I think we are living right now... In a grace deficit culture, you you take all the stuff that happened with the quarantine and COVID and you couple that with everything we experienced last year. The economic uncertainty, a very contentious presidential election, the riots and protests. You put all of that together and our culture is ready for a fight. There seems to be friction brewing Just underneath the surface, people are ready to be offended. You say the wrong thing, and I will blast you. On social media, if I have to, or to all of my friends, there is this grace deficit, and there is this tension and friction in our culture. Now, I say all that not to depress you, but to give you this encouragement. As followers of Christ, this is an opportunity for us to be A light in the darkness. This gives us an opportunity to show grace where grace is not being shown. This gives us the chance to show a lot of love in situations where there is a lack of love. I I know there's always going to be conflict. We cannot avoid conflict in this world. However, I want you to notice what Jesus said about those who are followers of Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. In other words, if you are a child of God, then you are called to bring peace to situations. And this is not our natural default response. This is not how we are naturally wired. However, when you become a follower of Christ, you get a new nature and you are to look and act differently. And one of those ways that we are to act differently is to bring peace into situations where there is conflict. So today and over the next three weeks, that's what we're going to talk about. How do we, in a biblical way, navigate relational conflict? And today we're going to do a little bit of self-examination. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn to James chapter 4. If you're new to church, James is towards the end of your Bible. Uh, Go basically to Revelation and back up a few books. It's right after Hebrews. Um, James was written by a guy named James who was the brother of Jesus. Now, imagine how hard that was growing up, being the brother of Jesus. If you grew up with siblings, you know that there are, are always comparisons being made. So just imagine, you're James, and you've got to live in the same house with Jesus. Mom and dad say, James, look at Jesus. He's sinless, and you can't even keep your room clean. You know, what's What's going on with you? There there was tension between James and his brother Jesus. And if you think that is just conjecture on my part, look at what John said about the family dynamics of Jesus' family. John chapter 7, here is what John wrote about Jesus and his family. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea, Because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers, which includes James, said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Okay, so get the picture of what was happening here. Jesus grew up in the region of Galilee. The little town of Nazareth was in this region. That is where the family of Jesus lived. In fact, Jesus spent most of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee and all of these little towns that are dotted around that uh, particular area. So Jesus was in Galilee... And Jesus avoided going to Judea, where the big city of Jerusalem was located. Why? Because the Jewish leaders in Judea wanted to kill him. So Jesus said, I'm going to stay here in Galilee, in Nazareth, in this area, rather than go to Jerusalem because the people there want to kill me. You tracking with me so far? Notice what the brothers of Jesus said. Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee. And go to to Judea. Well, see, fellas, here's the problem. The people in Judea want to kill me. I don't want to go to Judea because the leaders there want to kill me. Oh, no. Go to Judea, Jesus. And there your disciples may see the works you do. In fact, Jesus, if you're so special, like Mama always says you are, if you're so special then go because no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Won't you just go on to Judea, Jesus? And, you know, maybe you'll get yourself killed in the process. But, you know, that just go. We'll stay here. We'll take care of things at home. Now, just in case the reader of John's gospel didn't understand exactly why they were saying that, he clarifies it here in verse 5. For even... His own brothers did not believe in him. James and the other brothers of Jesus did not believe he was the Messiah. Now, fast forward a few years. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, James at this point is not only a believer in Jesus. He is the head of the church in Jerusalem. Right in the heart of the place where they wanted to kill Jesus, and then after the death and resurrection of Jesus, wanted to kill all the followers of Jesus. And James was the leader of the group in Jerusalem. It's like getting the appointment as the U.S. ambassador to North Korea and living right in the heart of Pyongyang. I mean, that was James. Why was James at this point not only a believer in his brother as the Messiah, but willing to risk his life as the leader in Jerusalem? There's only one explanation that makes sense. It was the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus did exactly what he said he would do, and after his death, he was raised again to life, that proved that he was Exactly who he claimed to be. And although James did not believe in Jesus while he was alive, once he saw the resurrected Jesus, he said, that's it. I believe that he is truly the Messiah. So James was serving as the leader in Jerusalem because of the resurrection. That's right. Amen. Because Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. I've said this so many times before. If the resurrection is true, it changes everything. If it's not true, just go home, give all this up. If it's not true, why are we here? But if it's true, it changes everything in your life. And if it's true, it's worth giving your life to Christ, just like James did, giving your all to Him because if it's true, it makes all the difference in the world. That's, that's where James was in his heart and mind and he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem At some point, he wrote a letter to Christians who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. The letter is a short letter. It's only five chapters long. If you've never read James, I would encourage you to read it. Uh, It addresses very practical issues of our faith. James does not get deep into theology. He basically says, here is putting feet to your faith. Here's how you should live out your faith. And one of the areas he addresses is relational conflict. What do we do when we experience friction with other people? So James chapter 4, we're just going to read the first three verses. All right, James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes friction between you and other people? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So James here in three short verses gives several reasons why we experience conflict with others. The first is this. When we experience conflict, we need to recognize our own selfishness. Notice what James says here. What causes fights and quarrels among you? So here's the question. Why do I have friction with other people? Why is there relational conflict? Why do my spouse and I fight? Why do I have fights with my co-workers? Why is it that I have this tension with my neighbor? Why is it that my friend and I are in this fight? Why do I have fights and quarrels? James gives the answer. They come... From your desires, why do I have fights? James says, "Because you're selfish." No, James. Wait a second. You are way off here, James. That's not it at all. James, it's not my fault. No, James, it's not my. It's his fault. James, it's her fault. It's their fault. It's not my fault that I'm having this fight, James. You, you you're way off base. In fact, James, I can tell you that I have figured out. A perfect solution so that I will never have to have fights with anyone ever again. If everybody would just do exactly what I want them to do all the time, then I would never have fights with anyone. James says, exactly. You're exactly right. You have selfish desires, and when your desires are not met, you get upset, and you quarrel, and you fight, because you want to get your way now if you're fairly new to church and you're just here and checking everything out first of all thank you for being here i'm glad that you're here but if you're not sure that you really believe in jesus and you're not sure that you believe the bible and you're just you're just questioning everything right now here's one place where i'm pretty sure i can get you to agree with me The Bible says that we are all born as selfish sinners. And you may say, I'm not sure if I believe the Bible, but I bet you, you believe in this principle. Um, Why is it that you do not have to teach a two-year-old how to hit another two-year-old? Why is it that you do not have to teach a two-year-old how to lie? If we are all born good, but corrupted by our environment, then why is it that naturally that kid will hit another kid? Now, if you say you're not sure if you believe that we are born as sinners, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and volunteer in our preschool ministry in the 2K class. In fact, you don't have to volunteer. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to a 2K class, and I want you to just stand off to the side and observe take notes if you want to just watch all these little sinners interact <laughs> with each other i mean, you may say well you know they're so sweet and they're so innocent just wait a while just watch in fact at some point you'll see something like this two boys one truck what happens there's a fight Boy number one has the truck. Boy number two wants the truck. Boy number two takes from boy number one the truck. Boy number one's not happy. Why? His desires aren't being met. His wants aren't being met. So boy number one pulls back on the toy from boy number two. Then what happens? Well, his desires aren't being met. So what happens? Well, eventually at some point, one of them's hitting the other one and the other one's going to the teacher crying now what you see here in a picture like this is a microcosm of what we all experience in life when we do not get our way when our wants and our desires aren't being met that will bring about friction that will bring about relational conflict. James says the first thing you've got to do is to examine your own selfish desires. Recognize that you are a sinner. Recognize that we are all selfish sinners. Okay, that's number one. Number two is to reject my default response. So here's what James says. Verse two, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So James here uses some pretty extreme language. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. James, who are these people that you're writing to? You know, who are these individuals who are having these fights and having these arguments, and they're getting to the point that they're so upset that they're committing murder? James, that sounds a little extreme. And then he says, well, but some of you, you don't get what you want, and so you just covet. You're you're jealous. You sit around and you grow bitter because you're not getting your way. James, what situation are you describing here? I think what James is doing is pointing out that all people typically have one of two default responses that we naturally exhibit when we do not get our way. Default response number one is this. It is to attack. This is the two-year-old who, when the truck is taken from him, he pops the other two-year-old. He, he attacks. He, he wants to win by force to get the truck back. Now, as adults, we normally, normally, normally do not respond initially the same way a two-year-old does. We have a progression of responses that we follow when this is our default response. So the first is to verbally manipulate. So we get in a fight. We get in an argument. The first thing that we do when we go on the attack is to, like a lawyer, defend our case. We spin. We manipulate. (laughs) (laughs) Wait for the jokes, please. (laughs) I need all the help I can get. And we will use very extreme language, like you always. You never. And we will just spend the argument as best we can to paint a picture that we are right and the other individual is wrong. We will paint a picture of them as a bad guy. We will verbally manipulate until we can get the other person to agree, and we can win our case. The next stage is to verbally assault. When verbal manipulation doesn't work, we begin to raise the volume and to win our case by shouting. And we figure if we can't win by logic, maybe we can win by verbal force and if we yell loud enough they'll finally just give in and they'll agree to give us what we want. Sometimes this verbal assault doesn't come by yelling, sometimes this comes by getting people on our side. And so we'll gossip. We'll go to other people. You know what she did? Let me tell you what she did. Let me tell you what he did. And we'll try to get everybody into our camp agreeing with us. Yeah? Or, or, or we'll, if we're married, we'll go to the kids. You know what your mom did? Let me tell you. I just can't believe it. And we'll try to get them all on our side. So we'll verbally use whatever we can to assault the other individual. Then from there, it becomes physically assaulting. That's that's where the verbal manipulation and the verbal assaults aren't enough. And so, like we referenced earlier, the domestic abuse happens. 911 is called the police get involved. And then finally, what James said, if we ultimately don't get our way and we're angry enough, we will take it as far As murder. That's what James was referencing here in this verse. That we all have this default response. Some of us, this is our default response to attack. The other default response is to escape. So you have two two year olds fighting over the truck. One pops the other two year old. That two year old then runs from the situation to the teacher to plead his case to a higher authority to try to win the truck back, but by going to this teacher to get the truck from her. Now, again, in adult confrontation, we typically go through a series of of ways that we exhibit this escape response. The first is to avoid or deny. What's wrong with you? Nothing. Are you sure? Are you sure? Doesn't sound like nothing. Kind of sounds like something. It's nothing. It's nothing. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm way fine. I'm fine. Leave me alone. Are you sure? No, there's no problem. I'm telling you, there's no problem. I, I'm just, I'm, I, I'm not, I don't want to talk about it. Now, in marriages and in the workplace, this is typically the place where someone who avoids or denies the problem can actually take some small issue and they allow it to grow. They make it become a big issue because they won't address just the small thing that needs to be addressed. And In fact, for all of you out there who are digital warriors and you love social media, here's a post for you. I want you to put this on your Twitter account or Instagram or uh, Parler or whatever the latest thing is. So in your relationships... Don't let cracks become chasms. Hashtag friction, hashtag Northway making. Go ahead and post that. (laughs) Something that begins as a small crack, just a small issue, because it's not being dealt with, it will grow and it will grow and it will grow and ultimately becomes this chasm. And this thing that months ago could have been dealt with and not a big issue is now this huge problem and you end up having these major issues and you leave the company or there's all this strife, all because you avoided, avoided, avoided ever talking about the issue up front. So the first is to avoid or deny. The second is to inwardly sulk. This is where you just become bitter and you sit around and in your mind you have this argument with that individual over and over and over. And in your mind, when you have those conversations, you always win, right? Right? Because you will say something that is so incredibly brilliant that all they can do is hang their head and acknowledge that you're right and they're wrong. At least that's how it goes in my head when I have those imaginary conversations. So you inwardly sulk and and you don't talk about it, you don't address it, you just grow more and more bitter. Then the next is to temporarily flee. This is where you get some space between you and that individual. This is where you have a period of separation in your marriage, or this is, this is where you ice out that friend. And when you text all of your friends about going and meeting at the restaurant, you conveniently leave their name out of the friend group or the GroupMe app. You don't include them, and you try to get everybody on your side, and you, you just bump them out of the picture for a while. And then finally, the last one is to permanently flee. This is where there's divorce. This is when you quit the company. This is where you you, know, you end the friendship. This is where you say about that friend, they're dead to me. I, I'm, I'm not talking to them anymore. Okay, so we all have one of these two default responses. I need a little bit of audience participation here. Let me ask you this. I need you to, particip- to participate. Would you say that your default response is number one, are number two. All of you who say number one, raise your hand. That, that's you, man. You go on the attack. You're ready to do them in. I mean you you've not committed murder, but you could, you know. If they pushed you enough, you could you could do it. Okay, a few of you. How many of you this is it, default response number two. You just want to get out of the situation. Okay, that's most of you. That's interesting. That that's not the same as the first service. The first service is a wow Then in this particular group. Now, one more question for you. If you are married, how many of you in your marriage would say that you're one way and your partner's the other way? How many of you would say that? OK, that, that, that's most. So some of you who are attackers did not respond earlier. In my observation, that's almost always the case. I've not done any official studies on this. But in all of my conversations and in my relationship with other married couples, it is almost always this way, that one couple has default response number one of attack and the other uh, party has default response number two, which is to escape. Now, there are a couple of reasons for this. The first is basically what the great theologian Paula Abdul said, opposites attract. For all you 80s fans, that was a shout out to you. The second reason is I believe that God puts people together who have different default responses because otherwise it can be bad. If both of you have default response, number one, you need to have a lot of Jesus in you because that can get ugly fast. I mean, you start moving through those steps and nobody backs down. Somebody's leaving in a body bag. I mean, that that was right. You did it. Way to go. Where are we? Back up here. Number one. Number two. So if you're both number two, what happens? You just don't talk. I mean, it gets to be a cold winter in your house. So typically, God puts people together that have different responses. The point is we all have a default response. We need to recognize that default response and reject it in favor of a biblical response, which is what James talks about next. Okay, so let's go back. Rethinking my role in conflicts. Number one, recognize my selfishness. Number two, reject my default response. And number three, re-examine my motives. Look at what James writes here. You do not have... Because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So what James does here is basically two things. One, he says, you get into a fight. There's some kind of conflict. You're having friction with someone else, and you don't even take the time to stop and pray about it. You you don't ask God. You just assume that you're right, the other person's wrong, and you don't talk to God about it. If you're married in here, and that is where more of your conflicts will happen than any other place in life, the only people who don't understand that truth are either single or engaged. I love engaged couples. We're in love. We'll never fight. Just wait. If you're married, you'll have more conflict in that relationship than any other relationship. And you know how it works? You know, you've got your desires, you've got your expectations, your partner has their expectations, your spouse has their wants, you know, you've got your wants, they've got their wants, and when they're not met, you have conflict. The husband walks in one day and just says, hey, honey, by the way, the guys asked me about playing golf on Saturday morning. I told them I could do it. That's okay, right? No, it's not Okay. Don't you remember? I've got the brunch plan with the girls. Somebody has to watch the kids. I told you about this. You didn't tell me about this. Yes, I did three weeks ago. Well, that was three weeks ago. I can't remember anything from three weeks ago. I, I, how in the world do you expect me to remember that? Did you put it on the calendar? Well, no, I didn't put it on the calendar. I told you about it. I didn't think I had to put it on the calendar. Well, don't you remember last year when we had that fight, we established the rule that it's got to go on the calendar, otherwise it's not official, if it's not on the calendar? Well, the only reason I agree to that stupid rule is because I was able to put all of my yoga classes for the whole year on the calendar. That's a dumb rule. I don't like that rule. And then the conversation just goes downhill from there. You know the story, if you're married, you've had that fight before or some form of it. At some point, though, you'll separate. And when you go to your separate corners, the best thing you can do is to sit down with the Bible in your lap and start to pray and say, God, what, what is my role in this? God, where am I at fault? James says the first problem is You don't pray about it. The second problem is when you do pray about it, you're not praying with the right motives. You're you're coming before God and you're assuming that you're right, that the other individual is wrong, and your prayer to God is a very selfish prayer. God, help them to see the error of their ways. God, enable them to see just how wrong they are. And God, if they won't listen to you, then won't you just smite them? You're good at smiting. Just smite them. Ever how you want to smite them. James here says, no, that's not how you need to pray. When you come before God, here's what you need to do. You need to come with a blank sheet of paper and sign your name at the bottom and say to God, you fill in that paper with whatever it is that I need to do. And God, you show me where I'm wrong. You show me my role in the conflict. And God, I promise you, that I will do whatever I can to make peace in this situation. You will never be able to avoid all conflict in life. Uh, Conflict is inevitable. In fact, when you read the Bible, there are only two chapters in the Bible where there is no conflict. The very first two chapters of Genesis, before the fall, and the last two chapters of Revelation, which describe heaven. Everything in between is conflict, because we are sinners who live in a broken world. However, as followers of Christ, Jesus made this promise. Blessed are the peacemakers. In some way, God promises to bless our lives when we are intentional about making peace where there's friction.